0: and welcome podcasters to our first episode of the British Summer. Thank you all for your kind messages, comments, and questions Uh, uh, we continue to receive. Uh, They're very much uh, appreciated, and um, we love the uh, engagement from around the country. Today, as ever, I'm joined by my co-host, Kerry Morgan. Hello, Kerry. Hello, John. And our guest speaker today, coming around from behind the glass, is Alice White. Alice, hello and welcome. Hello. Let's drive straight in. Uh, back by popular demand, we have a bonanza of contractual construction cases this week. Kerry and Alice, do you want to talk us through the cases you've chosen?
1: Yes, of course. So uh, the case I'm kicking off with today is Technicas Reandus Saudia, which are called TRF, uh, and Career Development Bank. This is a helpful case on the interpretation of a demand guarantee given by a bank in the context of a trade finance transaction.
0: Uh, And hanging on just there Kerry, sophisticated though our audience is is probably pretty mixed, so uh, undoubtedly we have some trade finance disputes experts out there, but maybe a few with some less experience. Could you talk us through the need-to-know points?
1: Yeah, uh, no problem. So as a reminder, a demand guarantee, which is also called a demand bond, is used to secure payments and performance in contracts between global trading partners. So in particular in the international construction industry, the bank is typically introduced as the third party to the underlying transaction. Um, So it will be the issuer of the demand guarantee and it will be required to make payment to the beneficiary where there has been a default under the underlying trade contract. The case specifically considers the standardized contractual rules from the ICC for Demand Guarantees, uh, known as the Uniform Rules for Demand Guarantees, or URDG
2: 758.
1: Catchy title. Very catchy. Uh, There are relatively few judgments considering the standard form documentation used in trade finance arrangements. So this is a useful case particularly because we are seeing a growing trend of parties looking to issuing banks to recover under these instruments. So a brief bit of background, this all took place in the context of a construction project. TRS was the main contractor on a major construction project and it benefited from a demand guarantee executed by the defendant bank which guaranteed the return of any advanced payments contractually made by TRS to its subcontractor. The subcontractor walked off site, this is where the story gets interesting, and as a result, TRS made a demand on the bank under the guarantee to try and get back the advanced payments it had made to the subcontractor. TRS applied for summary judgment on its claim, and this was the result of that hearing. The outcome was that the High Court found in TRS's favour and ordered the bank to make a payment under the guarantee. And I think it's a good way to illustrate the difficulties for banks in trying to resist calls made under demand guarantees in the English courts.
2: So how did the bank try to resist the call in this case?
1: The bank
2: basically
1: said that advance payments made to the subcontractor by TRS had been made to the wrong account. So, according to the guarantee, payments had to be made to an HSBC account, but the account used was held at a bank partly owned by HSBC, but it was not um, an HSBC account per se.
2: I see. So, the bank was seeking a narrow interpretation of the terms of the guarantee.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, which makes sense because it was trying to resist the demand. But the court found that the relevant account complied with the terms of the guarantee and so adopted a broader interpretation. And it seems that this is indicative of the approach of the court to cases of this type in order to enforce payments out in relation to payment guarantees. The court also made some obiter comments on certain articles of URDG 758, which again accord with this philosophy. In particular, um, the court's analysis of Article 24 highlights that if a guarantor bank intends to reject a demand, it must be very careful to comply with the notice requirements of the guarantee. As I said, we're seeing a growing trend of parties looking to banks to recover under demand guarantees and other trade finance agreements. And I suspect this will only grow as the economic consequences of Covid-19 unfold, with more likelihood of parties making a call on demand instruments.
0: It's quite interesting attempt to avoid payments. It reminds me of letters of credit cases that I've done under UCP 600 where similar highly technical points are taken and ultimately fail. So as you say Kerry, I suspect we're going to see a lot more of this, albeit that scope for arguing um, with these standard form um, contracts is incredibly difficult. Well, thank you for that. Um, You said you had two cases, what's your second case for us?
1: Yeah, um, moving on now to the second case, this is uh, Two Entertainment Video and Sony Europe. So the headline here is the London riots of 2011 did not give rise to a valid force majeure defence. This decision arose in the context of claims for failing to secure a warehouse from break-ins and arson attacks where the defendant Sony Europe, sought to rely on a force majeure clause as a defence.
0: I can see ears pricking up around the podcaster community, Kerry. The timing of this case sounds very helpful in the context of COVID-19 in particular, uh, around force majeure clauses, which will be very much of interest at the moment.
1: Yeah, precisely. Um, undoubtedly more parties will be turning to force majeure clauses when seeking to avoid contractual obligations because of the pandemic either legitimately or to try and get out of a bad deal. Uh, and cases looking at force majeure clauses are not that common, so take note. Um, I certainly, every time I see any mention of force majeure or frustration in a case, uh, I deep dive straight into that case. Um, So, as we know, force majeure clauses are a contractual right. So, the precise scope of the clause will depend upon the wording of the contract. However, in general terms, a force majeure clause will uh, suspend the party's obligations, often with a right to terminate if the force majeure event continues for a set period of time. The usual trigger is an event beyond the reasonable control of the parties, which prevents, hinders or delays performance. That's the kind of phraseology you need to be looking out for. Um, but force majeure clauses can be difficult to rely on, as illustrated by this decision, where the court found that the force majeure clause did not bite. The real sticking point was the foreseeability of the relevant event, even though the clause itself did not contain a reference to unforeseeability. And does an event need to be unforeseeable under force majeure? a good question. So there's no general requirement under English law that an event must be unforeseeable to give rise to a claim for force majeure relief. But having said that, the more an event is foreseeable, the more it may be possible to guard against it having an impact on contractual performance. So if failures take steps to deal with the alleged force majeure event may be seen as the real cause of non-performance. And this might be particularly relevant in the context of COVID-19 second wave litigation risk. So although the decision is not radical from a legal perspective, I thought it was worth highlighting as an important reminder that contractual mechanisms such as force majeure clauses do have their limits. And do we have a blog post on this decision? We do indeed. There is a link in the show notes.
0: Well, thank you Kerry. And uh, podcasters, if any of you are particularly interested in force majeure, please let us know. We, we might run a, a one-off special in, into force majeure arguments we're seeing being made at the moment. Uh, okay, thank you Kerry. Uh, turning to Alice now, I believe you've got a cautionary tale for us on notice provisions?
2: That's right. Our third and final case on contractual construction is Towergate Financial Limited and Hopkinson. And as you say, John, this highlights some hazards in trying to comply with contractual notice provisions um, specifically in the context of an indemnity claim. In this case, the claimant attempted to pursue an indemnity claim under an SPA and it gave notice within the contractual long stop date. However, in the language of the contract notification was required as soon as possible and in any event prior to the long stop date which in this case was seven years from signing the SPA. The court construed the clause as containing two separate conditions. Notification had to be given within the long stop date, and it had to be as soon as possible. And it was this second element that threw a spanner in the works for the claimant. The High Court found that on the facts, it had not notified the defendants as soon as possible.
0: I can certainly see this decision being of broad application. Uh, The wording of the notification provision is not unique, um, and it's quite common to many commercial contracts, uh, not just in the context of indemnity claims.
2: Exactly. Each case will turn on its own facts, but this definitely serves as a cautionary tale. A party benefiting from an indemnity clause could get caught out if it fails to give notice as soon as possible, even if it notifies within the long-stop date. Um, And this is also in keeping with the recent trend of cases we've seen which have upheld strict compliance with notice requirements in SPAs. So it serves as a good reminder that parties need to be vigilant in issuing notices which comply with the contractual provisions. As always there is a blog post in the show notes on this decision.
0: Excellent, well thank you Alice. Um, uh, Moving on now to our deep dive, Uh, this week it's into securities litigation. Um, unfortunately, just like the horse I bet on it's entry earlier in the year, uh, this one fell at the first hurdle. Uh, the case is Burford and London Stock Exchange. Uh, many of you will be familiar with Burford, it's one of the largest litigation funders. And Burford brought an unsuccessful Norwich pharmacol application against the LSE. Uh, as a reminder to podcasters and taking you back to law school, Norwich Pharmacal applications are made prior to proceedings being issued and seek disclosure from a non-party in order to identify the potential defendants to a proposed action. Uh, here, Burford was trying to identify the culprits of an alleged conspiracy to manipulate the market and its share value. Well,
1: is this is this related to the Muddy Waters short selling stuff that's been in the news?
0: Uh, Yes, that's absolutely right, Kerry. It was in in the news, I think, um, over the last uh, year. Uh, Just to touch on the background leading up to this and give it some context, uh, you're very uh, correct to mention Muddy Waters. Last year, the hedge fund um, published a series of tweets and opinion pieces on Burford and was involved in short selling Burford shares. And this triggered a a period of weakness in Burford's share price. But over and above that, Burford claimed that its share price fell not only because of short selling activity, which of course is legitimate, but also because they say uh, Muddy Waters conspired with others to manipulate the market through so-called spoofing and layering activity.
1: I see. So Burford was trying to get info from the LSE to work out who to bring claims against.
0: Quite so, Uh, that's right. Burford was seeking the identity of all parties trading in its shares in the relevant period with a view to bringing claims against the alleged market manipulators for breach of the Market Abuse uh, Regulation or MAR. Uh, The application was um, resoundingly dismissed. Uh, Burford was unable to provide any sound evidence and as you'll recall the uh, hurdle for um, evidence in a Norwich Pharmacal application is very high, Uh, it was unable to provide any evidence to support the suggestion that there had been uh, inappropriate trading activity. And the court was entirely persuaded by the evidence from the LSE that the regulators had analysed the non-public data and there was nothing to suggest any spoofing or layering had taken place.
2: So, in terms of the claim that Burford wanted to bring, you mentioned that it was the breach of the market abuse regulation but how could that give rise to a private civil law claim by Burford against the alleged market manipulators?
0: Very good question, Alice. Um, Burford had argued that the market manipulation was prohibited by the MAR, the market abuse regulation, and was actionable by Burford as a euro tort. The obstacle for Burford was the issue of whether or not the market abuse regulation is directly actionable by issuers in their position. They relied on uh, the European Court of Justice's decision in, and I'll mispronounce this, Munoz, uh, where uh, EC regulations were found to be directly actionable as a civil claim. Although that particular case concerned European quality standards for fruit and vegetables, and I think it was a civil claim uh, by a a grape trader against a a competitor, you can see uh, the analogy that Burford were trying to run. In any event, the court rejected the argument based on uh, the Munoz decision, uh, and that was because the English court has previously considered the specific question of whether EU rules on market manipulation are directly actionable. Uh, that was in the case of Hall and Cable and Wireless, where it was held that there was no personal right of action in tort for alleged market manipulation. And although that case considered the predecessor to the market abuse regulation, rather than the regulation itself, the court in Burford said it made no material difference. So the key takeaway is that the market abuse regulation is not directly actionable as a private law claim in the UK. So a double fall, if you like, by Burford. Uh,
1: So the court had some choice words for the UK shareholders association, I believe.
0: Uh, I was hoping you might ask about that. Yes, that's right Kerry. Uh, The court did uh, did indeed give short shrift to a joint letter penned by UK Shareholders Association and ShareSoC. And just to remind our podcasters, those organisations are formed of individual shareholders uh, who are often very vocal in their campaigns about listed shares which have lost value uh, and they've been known to agitate for claims to be brought. Their letter, in essence, supported Burford's concerns and implied that unless the claim succeeded, there would be a perception amongst investors that the authorities were ignoring market manipulation. Uh, The court was quite critical of the letter, uh, stating, and this is a quote, the thought that the court could and should be trusted to assess the case for itself, independently and impartially, appears not to have occurred to the author's. Uh, So, as you say, roundly rejected.
1: Yeah, the court pulling their punches there. And I presume we have a blog post on this decision, John?
0: Uh, Yes, as ever. uh, There's a link uh, to the decision in the show notes. Okay, on to our final section of this week. Alice, I think you've got an update on legislation for us.
2: That's right. The government published the Corporate Insolvency and Governance Bill recently, which contains some far-reaching proposals for insolvency reform. From a banking perspective, there are two aspects to mention that are particularly interesting. Firstly, the bill will introduce a new prohibition against ipso facto clauses, which are clauses that terminate a contract on insolvency. And this will no doubt be extremely important in a COVID-19 context, but interestingly, the prohibition does not apply to finance documents. So it will still be possible to terminate finance documents as a result of an insolvency event if there is an express termination provision to that effect. Secondly, the bill introduces a debtor-in-possession insolvency procedure for the first time in English law. This appears to grant super priority to certain pre-moratorium unsecured debts so that they rank above certain secured debts.
1: So from the bank's
2: perspective on that point, what what would you say is the key takeaway? Well, the key point to note is that these changes could upset the delicate balance between debtors and creditors under UK insolvency law, and potentially the balance between secured and unsecured financial creditors. And the combination of both of these aspects means that a bank may be able to get a real benefit from accelerating debt on the basis of an event of default for example, financial distress or an insolvency trigger, but this seems to have been an unintended consequence of the draft legislation. Um, There is a link in the show notes to our recent blog post on this, looking at the key point for banks, Um, but we will keep an eye on the progress of the bill and keep you updated.
0: Well, thank you, Alice. Um, Plenty in there to digest and very relevant uh, indeed. Well, there we have it, podcasters, another busy month uh, in the High Court uh, with some uh, key decisions for us all to digest, some of which are likely to be of direct interest um, in the current context dealing with COVID. Uh, As ever, um, please feel free to get in touch with any suggestions or requests or comments. They've been uh, great over the last couple of months. Uh, Thank you um, from me to our guest speaker, Alice, uh, very clear and insightful, so thank you. And uh, to my co-host Kerry Morgan, thank you very much Kerry. And um, to my podcasters, looking forward to seeing you again soon, all the best.